Welcome to the DTB podcast for July 2017, volume 55, number 7. My name's David Fazakli, I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, and I'm James Cave, uh, editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month features a medical intervention that I guess became one of the villains of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, hasn't ever really recovered since then. So why are we featuring it? Well, we, I suppose, um, editorial just sort of asks really, is it fair that ECT still has um, such a stigma? And we've done it by looking at the good, the bad and the ugly. And we've looked at sort of a number of therapeutic interventions that have been more than just their therapeutics, I suppose. So we've looked at the combined oral contraceptive pill and the impact that has had worldwide, really, on a feminist movement and the the development there. We've also looked at the bad and looked at thalidomide and the impact that that disaster had. And we've, an ECT is the ugly, and we've talked about the place it has, but also looked at the Cochrane Review evidence and NICE guidance and reminded ourselves that it still has a place therapeutically. And perhaps with Big Pharma being less involved with psychiatric medication, um, perhaps there's going to be a, a swing back towards it. Of course, you know, it's, there are big issues with ECT, um, particularly issues around memory disturbance and loss. And obviously, it's never going to be a, a mainstream treatment. But we just ask ourselves whether it's fair that Nurse Ratchet still seems to influence our attitude towards it so much. And a quick reminder of what does guidance say about it at the moment? So we we have NICE that in 2003 recommended ECT solely for rapid or um, short-term improvement of severe treatment refractory uh, refractory depression, catatonia or mania. And um, in 2009, the guidance suggests that also it should be an option in moderate depression that has failed multiple treatments. So guidance does suggest it has a place there. So we're not saying bring it back unfettered use for everyone, but we're just saying that maybe it needs to be reconsidered in the, in the light of kind of diminishing pharmacological interventions. I think that's it. And I think we forget sometimes that the adverse effects of, of pharmacological interventions can be equally as devastating as ECT. OK, thank you very much. Our first main article reviews the use of a new presentation or preparation of liraglutide. So we're familiar with its use in diabetes, but the new product, what's it licensed for? Liraglutide is now licensed for the treatment of obesity, Um, either if you have a BMI over 30 or if you have a BMI 27 to 30 and one weight-related comorbidity such as diabetes. So how's it given? So this is a subcut injection and the dosing regime is usually that you start at a low dose, 0.6 milligrams, and then increase that dose over about five weeks up to three milligrams. And like all obesity drugs, it has this little quirk that you do a three month review. And if you haven't seen a 5% drop in someone's weight over that time, then you stop the medication then. Okay. So benefits seen in trials? 
So we we have a number of trials, um, all sort of enveloped up in the what's called the scale S C A L E studies, and this was a a number of studies about three and a half thousand patients, fifty six week double blind randomized controlled trial. All the members of the study had to have a diet, a calorie restricted diet, and do 150 minutes of exercise per week. So there was that lifestyle intervention. And then liraglutide was compared with placebo in, in a number of groups of patients, in those with prediabetes, those with diabetes, etc., to give an idea of, of what impact it can have. And the sort of numbers that it produced? So if you look at the, the main study, which is, say there's just this 56-week study, you saw on average 8% body weight loss in the liraglutide group versus 2% loss in the placebo group. That equated to an average of about 5 to 6 kilos difference in weight loss between the liraglutide group and the placebo group. What's perhaps more interesting is if you look at the percentage of patients who lost more or 10% or more of their body weight, a third of patients in the liraglutide group managed to achieve that, whilst only 11% of the placebo group did that. So liraglutide does, whilst you're taking it over 56 weeks, you know, you do lose weight compared to placebo. But that is also alongside the dietary restriction and the exercise increase. Yes, that's right. And any comparison with the only other drug that we have available in this country at the moment, Orlistat? Yes, yeah, so they, they, there has been a meta-analysis done comparing Orlistat, liraglutide and uh, placebo, about 28 studies in all. And if you look at the percentage of patients who achieved uh, 5% weight loss or more, about 23% of the placebo group managed to do that, about 44% of the Orlistat group and 63% of the liraglutide group. So it does seem to have um, an advantage over Orlistat. And what do we know about what happens when you stop it? Well, this is the interesting, of course, isn't it? And there was a 12-week extension study done beyond those 56 weeks of the main study in a thousand patients. And what we found was that in the placebo group, almost 3% of that group then regained weight, which indicated that, you know, a lot of these patients will simply return to their, um, or they will start to regain weight as soon as they stop it. And what, any notable harms or adverse effects? Yeah, so there was a quite a big dropout rate in these uh, in these trials in the liraglutide group, with about 6% of patients taking it having serious adverse events. Things like 16% vomiting, about uh, a fifth of patients having diarrhea. And about in, in, the, in the big study, there were seven cases of pancreatitis, which equates to about 2.4 cases per thousand patients. And that compares with sort of 0.6% in the placebo group. So there is a, an issue around pancreatitis that we need to warn patients about if using this drug. So given its mode of action, are there likely to be any problems with hypoglycemia in patients treated with liraglutide? So interestingly enough, despite its mode of action, the incidence of uh, hypoglycemia wasn't great in the liraglutide group. About 1.6% of patients had symptoms of uh, hypoglycemia compared to 1.1% in the placebo group. So it wasn't an issue, but, but it is a, a contraindication uh, in patients clearly having insulin or on a sulfonylurea because of the concerns of hypoglycemia in those, those patients. And I guess the other question that we 
just need to address is that of its price. Yes, and this is where the whole thing just falls apart, really, because we're talking about a cost of almost £200 for 30 days treatment. And that amounts to about £2,500 for a year's treatment. And we're talking about a high dropout rate. We're talking about concerns about the fact that when you finish a glutide, you're likely to see weight gain. And there are some other concerns as well. One of the issues in the trials was that there seems to be better weight loss in women compared to men. And actually, 70% of the trial personnel were, were women. So this is not a drug that we can recommend at this point. OK, thank you very much. And our final article discusses the challenge of managing people who have clinical features of both asthma and COPD. Uh, and again, why have we chosen this one? So this is this is a fast moving area. In fact, it was so fast moving that they changed the name of this condition halfway through us actually writing the article. So recently, this concept of asthma COPD overlap has been raised. It's been recognised that there are patients who have both features of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and of asthma. And there's been a desire to explicitly note that and start to look at how best these patients should, should be managed. So did go under the acronym of ACOS, but that's subsequently been changed? Yes. Yeah, so I've, for reasons that I still find slightly unclear, they felt that the fact that it was asthma COPD overlap syndrome might give the impression that it's it's a whole host of different conditions and actually might lead to people trying to be posted into individual areas. And they felt it more important that, that actually patients are individualized in their treatment. So the, the feeling was that they should drop the, the, the syndrome part of ACOS and it is now just ACO. And the concern at the moment is that, that this group of people who have got appear to have features of both we really don't know how to manage them particularly effectively and current UK guidelines don't seem to address their needs no I mean it's it's a sort of um, it's a vicious circle really these patients have been excluded from trials because of their mixed uh, uh, issues so if you're doing a trial on COPD you don't want to include patients with asthma or features of asthma and and likewise vice versa so these patients have been excluded yet at the same time there is some evidence and we quote this in the article that actually patients with ACO do have increased symptoms and poor outcomes both hospitalization and mortality compared to patients with clear COPD or clear asthma. And one of the major therapeutic challenges appears to be, so what should be the intervention for people who've got features of both? Do you use inhaled steroids? Do you use labbers? What do we identify as the, as the kind of way forward? Exactly. And I think the features from uh, Gina, the guidance group who have created the only set of guidelines we have for ACO at the moment, is that we should consider these patients as asthmatic principally in the sense that we should not treat them with a long acting beta agonist without an inhaled corticosteroid. And inhaled corticosteroids should form the basis of management of, of this group of patients at the moment. Because that leaves you with the, the other challenge, which is, of course, we know that people who have COPD and are treated with 
inhaled steroids may have a higher risk of uh, developing pneumonia. Precisely. And that's exactly the issue here. And I think what we're going to probably see over the next few years is an attempt to look at some of the phenotypes of these patients. You know, have you got a patient who's got COPD, but has got an eosinophilic inflammation, who therefore might gain more from inhaled corticosteroids? Or have you got a patient who perhaps uh, has got features that actually will respond better to other modalities? And I think that's probably where we'll see development in the future. But at the moment, the, the guidelines suggesting a rather pragmatic approach of treating for asthma and then seeing where you go from there. Precisely. And, um, you know, there has obviously been um, some developments around the use of some of the long-acting muscarinic antagonists like teotropium, which are demonstrating therapeutic advantages both in asthma now and in COPD. So there are developments there as well, which which obviously will be effective in both types of patients. So things may well may well change again. Okay, thank you very much. To read this and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any comments, please email them to dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.